Father, we are so blessed. Momentary suffering helps us, or tempts us rather, to forget that and to doubt that. But we are loved more than we will ever know on earth. It'll take all of heaven and all of eternity to show us how much you love us. And Lord, this, this passage I'm about to share is, is deep. It's, I can understand it, but I really can't fathom it. I can't get my mind and heart around what you've told us about yourself here. So help me. Help me to understand it. Help me to be clear in communicating it. And our attention spans, Lord, including mine, have grown so short. Uh, give us understanding so that we would understand your self-explanation, what you've chosen to tell us about yourself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we would love you, the God who is there and not only is present, but loves us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. How is everybody? Only, only in Southern California would 9 a.m. attendance be impacted by cold weather. But it was cold this morning. I'm wearing the short sleeves primarily to show a false bravado, a false courage, that it really doesn't get that cold in Southern California. Listen, before you open your Bibles, let me just again remind you um, how much you're loved here. This has been the strangest time in our church's life. Uh, it's all the markers, all the metrics that we as pastors and ministry volunteers could count on, a lot of them, uh, not all of them completely, but many of them have been removed. We don't know who's here. We don't know who's listening. We don't know who's watching. We don't know who's sick. We don't know who's healthy. We don't know how the pandemic has affected you uh, financially and in your health and in your family. And we're doing our dead level best as a ministry staff, not only the people uh, who work here, but a uh, over a hundred volunteers. We're all collectively doing our best to know who you are, where you are, and how you're doing. The channels are always open. We welcome your prayer request. We welcome communication with you, whether it's text message, phone call, email, whatever. Send a smoke signal, okay? Send a, send a carrier pigeon over, whatever means you need to communicate with us. Uh, we want you to know that, as I've been telling you for years, we want this to be more than an audience. We're, we're a family, we're a group of people who have called together by Jesus to serve Jesus and to spread the good news to others. And the pandemic has not changed our mission or our message at all. It's made this strange tent necessary. Okay, we've got candy cane uh, tent poles now. We're doing our very best in an extremely strange situation. But Jesus is the same. You're loved in the same way. The methods have changed. The message goes on. The character of God is the same, and that's why I'm excited to open the Bible with you in John's gospel in the first chapter. If you'll open your Bible in John chapter 1, I need to tell you on the front side, this passage right here is one of the deepest in the New Testament. It will make all the difference in the world to you if you have your Bible open. If you just listen to me, you'll very likely get lost in the words. Don't let the pandemic get you out of the habit of bringing your Bible to church. Whether you do that electronically or on a paper copy, open your Bible and read with me John's gospel. 
Here's what we're looking at. We're looking at the fourth and final gospel. Four portraits of the life of Jesus were given us in, to us in the New Testament. None of them claim to be comprehensive. They're all true. They're written from the perspective of four different people. Matthew was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Mark was not. He was a close disciple of Peter who relayed this information apparently to Mark so that Mark could write his gospel. Luke is a historian. He is someone who comes much later and who speaks to eyewitnesses, carefully compiles an account of the life of Jesus. So when you read across the gospels, you'll hear many stories in common You'll read one miracle, in particular, the feeding of the 5,000, told from four points of view. Don't let the similarities and the dissimilarities upset you or frighten you at all. They all enrich the story of this one person. Having the four Gospels is someone like having four different pictures of the same person in your home. In one, they may be serious. In the other, they may be laughing. In one, they may be outdoors playing sport. At another, they may be sitting at their desk deep in thought. It's the same person. You're just getting different perspectives on them. John's gospel is by far the most intimate. We're told in the gospel of John himself that if Jesus had something like a best friend on earth, it had to be John. Nobody was closer to Jesus than John the apostle. John's not a scholar either. He's a fisherman. He's a first century Jewish commercial fisherman who heard the call of Jesus and who knowing and trusting him, probably having heard from Jesus and watching him teach and work miracles perhaps for a year. There go my kids again on their motorcycle. I'm sorry for that. I've told them not to do that during service. They're all uncooperative children. See, he downshifts to give it one more, uh, one more burst. Uh, John is... Not a man of letters, he's an ordinary commercial fisherman who probably having heard from Jesus, perhaps for up to a year, makes a life-changing decision to do what Jesus tells him to do and follow after him. John is the last of the gospel writers to write, and because of his personal relationship with Jesus, he gives by far the most intimate portrait. Only two of the gospels have the birth account of Jesus. Matthew tells you of the birth of Jesus, Luke tells you of the birth of Jesus, and John does as well, but he does so in a different way. And this passage is meaty enough, it's substantial enough that I actually asked the first service to pray for me and to pray for you because I already knew what I had gotten myself into trying to preach these first 18 verses in the 9 a.m. service. And I'm just going to tell you on the front side, because John is writing long ago and far away, because he's using language that would have resonated immediately with his first readers, with the people who first read this gospel, his original audience, they would have picked up things that we simply will not. But John, in his own way, is also going to tell you about the birth of Jesus. He's just going to do so from a cosmic point of view. John is literally going to step back into eternity before the creation of the world and he is going to make the astounding claim that the Jesus who people saw die on a Roman cross 
who men like John witnessed not only died on a cross but rose from the grave, John is going to make the astonishing claim that that man, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, preaching in the synagogues, despised and ultimately rejected by the religious authorities of his day and subjected to a mockery of a trial and an undeserved death on a Roman cross, that man, John is going to say, is God. And the reason Jesus was all that and did all that is that from eternity past, God had purpose to save you and to save me. At the very end of his gospel, John is going to say that he has written all these things not to give a dry historical narrative, but so that the reader would actually believe the witness they were being given about Jesus and that by believing in him, by trusting Jesus, they would have the eternal life that Jesus alone could give them. All of that is in John chapter 1. Please look with me, John chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in John 1 verse 1 to discover what John tells us about Jesus. John chapter 1, please. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The first verse is astonishing. What is the first thing that John tells you about Jesus? John tells you this. Jesus is and always has been God. You know from reading the gospel of John, from being in a Christian church, you know that John is ultimately talking about Jesus. That may not have been immediately apparent to people who've just read the first verse. It's a very simple sentence. When you're learning Greek in seminary, it's the writings of John that they first teach you because his language is simple. He's a commercial fisherman. He's not a scholar. Greek is a learned language to him. It's not sophisticated. It's simple. But in this simplicity, and this is my challenge to communicate all this to you, in this simplicity, there's depth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and what? The Word was God. So whoever this word is, John is making an astonishing claim. This word was in the beginning. John here is for his Hebrew readers, for his Jewish readers, he's taking them back to another verse in the Bible. Also a first verse in the Bible. Does anybody in reading John 1.1, does that sound like any other first verse in the Bible to you? What would it be? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. The Hebrew faith depended upon the fact that God was the creator of the world. Without apology or explanation, John simply explains in the very beginning, from the very beginning, before there was any other thing, God was there. Now John, thousands of years later, says in that same beginning, before there were human beings, before there was a planet, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the next two verses are going to tell you that this Word, whoever He is, clearly is the very 
has the very nature of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. What is John telling you about Jesus? He is telling you that he is God. A Greek scholar, perhaps one of the greatest Greek scholars alive, says this. The effect of the ordering of the words, he's referring to the first verse of John chapter 1. The effect of the ordering of the words is to emphasize God as if John were saying, and the word was God, italics exclamation point. In ancient languages, don't do it now, but if you, if you Google ancient manuscripts of the Bible, Hebrew or Greek, you're going to notice, particularly in the Greek manuscripts, that all the words are pushed together. Paper was precious, papyrus was precious. They, to save time and to save space, they pushed all the words together. But the concept of the word was vitally important to the Jewish mindset. Having been raised with the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, Jewish believers knew that God spoke the world into existence, that in the account of creation, when God speaks, things happen, things come to exist. They could re keep reading in the Psalms and the, Proverb, uh, and the prophets and discover that God sent his word forth not only to create, but also to save and to heal. One of the prophets, for instance, says that the word of God goes out and it will not return void. In other words, when God speaks, things happen. So John is deliberately taking a word that is very precious and close to the Hebrew people who are a people of the book, who have God's writings, who were told God's story, who were told of the very identity of God. He is saying in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, the father is there, but there is another person apart from the father who is also with him, who is also God. This word, word, does that make sense? John's use of the word, new word, word. Am I making it worse? John is using the word word, which in Greek was logos. That word is so popular and has been so influential in Western civilization that we use it all the time. We just don't know it. If you ever studied biology, that's, those are Greek words. Bio means life. Logos, logi means knowledge or the science. When you're studying biology, you're studying the science or the knowledge of life. If you're studying anthropology, you're studying the science or the knowledge of human beings. If you're studying theology, you're studying the science or the reason or the knowledge of God. What John is doing here is trying to get the whole world's attention by using a word that was important not only to Jews because of their scriptures, but also to Greeks. Because Greek philosophers could look at the world around them and they made a very obvious observation that sometimes escapes modern human beings. They looked at the world as we find it and said to themselves, there is reason and wisdom and science behind all of this creation. There is a pure mind, there is pure reason that put the world together. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, 
and the word was with God and the word was God, what he is saying to Greeks is you were on the right path. There really is a mind behind creation. And according to verse three, he's the one who made all of creation. You're right. There is a mind greater than your own that existed before your own that made you and everything around you. He's likewise saying to the Jews, you were right to revere and understand the word of God because from the very beginning, along with God, there was someone else who John calls the word who was with God and who is God himself. He's trying to tell the Greeks, you're half right because you understand that there is reason and science in the world that stands behind it. And to the Jews, he said, you understand that God spoke the world into existence and that God has spoken to the world through the prophets, but you didn't even begin to understand that God would keep speaking and send more than a prophet into the creation he made. He would also send his own son. That's why Jesus is called the Word. And it can be even a little simpler than that. The word Word in Greek logos is very, very carefully chosen. When you want to meet someone and let them know who you are, what do you do to, what do you do to communicate with them? You do what? You speak to them. If ever you want to meet somebody, maybe you had the experience, I did, many years ago, my wife was sitting at, Dairy, at the Dairy Queen that is still on PCH, Warner and PCH. She was sitting there with her boyfriend. I disapproved of the idea that she had a boyfriend. I didn't want to be disrespectful at that moment, but as soon as she broke up with her, girl, with her boyfriend, I started speaking to her. Why is that? Because I wanted to get to know her. She didn't know it then, but I already wanted to marry her. When you want relationship with someone, when you want to understand someone, when you want to be loved and be loved in return by someone, you talk to them. We've learned this in marriage counseling. When words dry up, when silence starts dominating, that relationship is in deep, deep trouble. John is not only tipping his hat to the Greeks and acknowledging that they have some understanding of knowing that God made the world. He's not only reminding the Hebrews that God spoke the world into existence and used the prophets to communicate himself to people. Now he is saying something even bigger and stronger. That God spoke not only in creation and not only through prophecy and not only by putting people in a world that very obviously must have a maker, but that God kept speaking. God made us and he kept speaking to us through his word. We sinned and God kept speaking to us, trying to reach us and having ignored everything else that God had ever done for human beings, God spoke, the book of Hebrews says, in these last days, God spoke to us through his own son. And the son of God comes into the world. So, first of all, John is telling you Jesus is and always has been God. According to verse 3, Jesus is the creator of the world. And... Next, Jesus is also the revealer. Jesus is the one who is going to reveal life as it actually is. Look in verse 4. 
in him, in the word, John says, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which was light, to, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God." What John is telling you here is something astonishing. If you have the blessing of knowing Jesus, John says, that was not your doing. God looked across history, saw you, one of the many people he had made without knowledge of him. In the world he made, which speaks so clearly of him. If I can backtrack for just a moment, one of the one of the mental blocks that people are going to have in dealing with God is that for some 200 years now in our side of the world in the West, we have been insistently and repeatedly told that the world has no maker. John 1 verse 3, that Jesus was in the beginning and that he made everything that exists sounds like so much superstitious nonsense to people who have grown up in contemporary America. It makes no sense to people who have been raised falsely believing that science can know everything that can be known, that there is a maker. But if you think about it for a moment, you can see that the ancient Greeks themselves were onto something. They looked at the world and not knowing who God was said, there must be science, there must be knowledge, there must be a greater, purer reason, a bigger mind than our own that made all this. And if you think about it in simple terms, that seems really, really obvious. My younger son is a student, is a biomedical engineering student. And I'm so smart, I can barely now understand in his junior year even what that is. Okay? I, I, I took calculus and physics, but, well, I went to seminary for a reason, folks. Let's, uh, let me be clear. Okay? I promised God if he would let me get out of numbers, I would dedicate myself to words, either as a lawyer or a pastor or something where I didn't have to do any uh, science, technology, engineering, or math ever again. And here we are. Well, this week he told me he had a guest lecturer at his class. This is a man who apparently has, if I remember the story correctly, has a PhD in physics, teaches at Stanford University. Evan was excited to hear from him because that man is responsible for some of the things inside this device. See, my mindset is so limited, I had no idea it took a PhD in physics to put things inside a watch. I just thought they made it. But apparently this man is responsible for your watch telling you to stand up. If you have an Apple watch, it'll occasionally bug you and say it's time to stand up. Apparently he's responsible for that little app inside the watch. Now, why am I telling you all this? 
If you were hiking on a trail and you found my watch beside the trail and you started fidgeting with it and started clicking on the screen and suddenly it came to life and it told you the time and it told you the temperature and it also relayed information to you like how many minutes the previous wearer had been exercising and it started conveying to you that there were headlines from Apple News to tell you what was going on in the world, would it for a moment occur to you that this device which you've never seen before simply came to be on the trail? Would anybody believe that? No. There is a bigger mind behind creation. And John says that mind is the word of God himself. It is his son, Jesus, who made the world and everything in it. If that sounds like religious superstition to you, again, I'm taking a little rabbit trail before we finish. I want you to hear what the world's prominent scientists say about the moment of creation. If you'll indulge me for just a second. This is from a popular website. Discoveries in astronomy and physics have shown beyond a reasonable doubt that our universe did in fact have a beginning. Got that so far? What Genesis 1-1 says, in other words. Prior to that moment, there was nothing. During and after that moment, there was something. Our universe. The Big Bang Theory is an effort to explain what happened during and after that moment. According to the standard theory, our universe sprang into existence as a singularity around 13.7 billion years ago. What is a singularity and where does it come from? Listen, well, to be honest, we don't know for sure. Singularities are zones which defy our current understanding of physics. Here's astronomer Karen Masters. We can speculate in metaphysics or in religion about what was before the Big Bang, but again, we cannot use science to tell, tell anything about it as physics as we understand it breaks down at that point. Probably the world's foremost atheist, Richard Dawkins, who teaches at Oxford University, says this. The universe could so easily have remained lifeless and simple, just physics and chemistry, just the scattered dust of the cosmic explosion that gave birth to time and space. The fact that it did not, the fact that life evolved out of literally nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved literally out of nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only did evolution happen, it eventually led to beings capable of comprehending the process by which they comprehended. You understand what I just told you? Here's what they said. From nothing came everything. And Dawkins refers to dust and energy in the beginning that somehow given enough time created life. That takes faith. So does believing that in the beginning God. Their faith says that out of nothing suddenly there was everything. Out of nothing, there was a little bit of something that came from a place that we cannot begin to imagine or understand, and that those little things, recently the University of California at Berkeley said that in the beginning there were particles, 
And those particles led to everything that exists. That takes faith. They've already acknowledged. We don't know what happened before that. That is not the realm of science itself. God is telling you from the very beginning of his word with an echo in the gospel of John, in the beginning, it wasn't that there was nothing. In the beginning was someone a mind loving and faithful and creative and beautiful and bold and loving and giving who made the world perfectly that was stained and ruined by the crown of his creation rebelling against him that brought sin into the world, ruined my life, shortened my life, will eventually end my life on earth the way it ended yours and into all of that. The God who made it the word who was with God and the word who was God made it and revealed it. And then number two, John tells us that Jesus became a human being. The Christmas story is told in the gospel of John. It's just told in a single verse. One of the most important and staggering verses in the entire New Testament, John chapter one, verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh. See, the drama of this first chapter has been largely lost on you and me unless you have never heard this chapter before because when you read John 1 verse 1, you know already that's Jesus. You know who John is following. You know who John is going to speak of. You know who John wants you to believe. If you were, were one of his first readers, if you did not personally know John, if you had not personally seen and heard Jesus, you read John 1 verse 1 and thought to yourself, depending on whether you had a Hebrew or a Greek mindset, ha, huh, I was taught at least some things that were true. There is apparently a God who speaks things into existence, who has a mind greater than my own, who made everything. But then you keep reading and you learn about another man who came to announce the arrival of the word, who wasn't himself the life, who wasn't himself the light. He was just trying to get everyone to believe in Jesus. Then you come to verse 14 and that must have completely completely bowled over John's first readers because the word who was eternally there, the word who was in the beginning with God, the word who made everything that was made, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the eternal God became a human being. And John is telling you, not as a philosopher, but as an eyewitness, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's John speaking to you personally about what he saw, what he felt, what he heard from Jesus, who is and always has been God, but at the specific necessary moment in time became a human being. And that is one of the most staggering facts in all of creation. That ultimately is what we're celebrating at Christmas. It's not a feel-good story to give you a different set of values to improve your life briefly on earth until you inevitably die. 
It is telling you that the God who made everything not only made history but stepped into human history as a human being to save anyone who would believe in him. Because John told you in the verses just above that, he came to his own people but they rejected him. But he gave those people, anyone, Jews or Greeks, anyone who would believe him, he gave the right to become, what's it say in John 1.12? Check it for me. He gave them the right to become children of God because only God, having become a human being, can do that. So Jesus is not only the creator, he's not only the revealer, becoming a human being, he is now the savior. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. In other words, the reason you can have a relationship with God that is just as certain, as just as personal as a relationship you can have with another human being is because God wants it to be. And at this point, you'll say, boy, you lost me there for a second. Yeah, I get it. I lost myself at a certain point too. This is big, deep, heavy cosmic stepping back and trying to look not only at the universe, but at the God who made the universe. Don't let that discourage you. God is personal. He is nearer and closer than you dared imagine. He actually came as a human being. And the commercial fisherman says from firsthand experience, we saw him. We beheld him not as a skilled man, not as a wise man. We beheld his glory, glory as the glory of God himself. And the rest of John's gospel is John proving and demonstrating that everything he told you in these first 18 verses known to Bible students as the prologue to John's gospel, that it's all true. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disheartened when thinking about God makes your head hurt. When you think about the person of God and you think to yourself, I can't take much more. I don't really understand this. That's the nature of personal relationships. I'll prove it. You don't understand yourself. You ever been in a situation where you ask yourself why you did that? You ever walked away from something going, what's wrong with me? What do you mean? You were there the whole time. You've known you all your life. You're inside yourself. You have access to your own mind. If you don't understand yourself, how could anybody else possibly understand? This is one reason marriage and friendships and work relationships are so hard. There's not a person on earth who truly and fully understands himself. So if you can't understand yourself with the knowledge and the attention you have paid to yourself your entire life, because as my pastor used to say, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. Okay? You have been the chief interest of your life, your entire life, and you don't completely understand yourself. Don't be discouraged if thinking about the person who made you, you come up a little bit short. The reason Jesus became flesh is so that you could know God for certain. Listen to this, I'm nearly done. You can know God for certain. You cannot know God completely. You cannot know God exhaustively. One of the attractions of heaven, I'm convinced, is that as eternity rolls on, you're going to know God better and better as the years go by. 
And just as it is with your oldest friendship and your long and loving marriage, it really does get better as the years go by. That is the nature of good, loving, and personal relationships. But what John is telling you, astonishingly, in John chapter 1, verse 14, is that the Word who was always with the Father, because God, John calls him the Son, because the, the word that was always with God and that always was God, that same word became flesh. He became a human being, so real, so human, so ordinary that he could hang out with fishermen and he could cook them breakfast and he could listen to their stories and he could tell them his own so ordinary that he could suffer thirst, that he could be lied to and lied about. So ordinary and human that he could be taken by Roman soldiers and beaten and nailed to a cross and actually physically die because he was a human being. So human, in fact, that he could be tempted in the same way that you are because the book of Hebrews, which is very close to John's gospel at certain points, tells you that Jesus was tempted in the same way as you are in all things but without sin. So that thing you hate about yourself, that besetting sin you cannot change, the one thing that always chases you down and drags you back and keeps you captive, Jesus was tempted with that very same thing because he was an actual ordinary human being, but he was tempted without sin so that he could take your place. This is kind of mind-blowing stuff, but let me make it simple before I'm done. When Jesus was in the manger, because he was so close and so ordinary that his first resting place as a baby was actually in something designed to feed animals, and I'll tell you about that next Sunday. Do you believe that when Jesus was in the manger, he was pretending to be a baby, or he really was a baby? Is Jesus as the word of God, the eternal God, is he looking up into the starlit sky saying, pretty cool universe I made. I love this corner of the galaxy. Or is he a baby? I'll give you the biblical answer. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the point of all of it was to be your savior. The point of all of it was to save you. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What John is trying to show you is this. Only the God who became a man can welcome you into the family of God. When we say that Jesus is unique and that Jesus is superior, this is why. John concludes his witness in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from John, now John, the gospel writer says from his fullness, from the Jesus we knew from the word, he became flesh from the fullness of who he was. John says, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's the end to his introduction. Here's the significance of Jesus. Listen, no one has ever seen God. That is one reason modern man has a hard time believing in him. 
We've believed in scientism, and if we can't see it, we are not likely to believe it. John knows the difficulty. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Another translation says, he has explained him. So that when you know Jesus, you know God. Jesus is going to daringly say later in John's gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know the holiness and the justice and the mercy and the goodness and the faithfulness and the compassion of God, all you have to do is look at Jesus because he is God. So how do we bring all this down to right here, right now, what difference does this actually make? Because you may have noticed there's some depth there. This passage has kind of haunted me and bewitched me. I woke up at 4.30 this morning and stared at the ceiling, wondering, praying, Jesus, how in the world, in 40, 45 minutes, how can I ever begin to do justice, give clarity, make anything practical and useful, ordinary person as I am, to the ordinary people who will come? How could I ever do justice to what you have chosen to tell us about yourself? Pastors often come up short on the so what. So let me tell you four things in closing why this matters to you right here, right now. Number one, Jesus is truly God. He's not one among many gods. He is utterly unique. He is not a set of values. He's not a different and he's not even a better path. As he says later in the gospel of John, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Number two, in love, God has come closer to you and closer to me than we will ever understand. The eternal God has become flesh, walked among us, been tempted in our place, suffered and died for us, taken his life back from the grave so that you could have eternal life if you trust him. Thirdly, evil is rampant, but it won't win. 2020 has not only been hard because of the pandemic, it's also been hard because of evil. Suffering people pressed and having their support and their comforts kicked out from under them. People we didn't know were capable of great evil have turned out to be monsters. It's very unsettling to watch the news and see the reality of the human heart displayed on our TV screens day after day after day after day. John's gospel says that the light was shining in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus reveals not only who God is, he also reveals the reality of evil and he promises that evil won't win. And finally, number four, we're told that Jesus will save everyone who believes in him. At the end of John's gospel, John acknowledges that Jesus said and did many things that he has not recorded. But he said, I've written these things so that you will believe in him and that believing you may have eternal life. And that's where I'd like to close. If you're a Christian, I'd like you to trust him more. I'd like you to understand that the God who died for you, as astonishing as that sentence is, Jesus, who always has been God, became a human being so that he could be tempted and die in your place. If Jesus were merely a human being, his righteous, perfect life would have saved him and him alone. 
If Jesus, who always was God, remained God alone and never became a human being, he would never enter into your experience and never be able to become your substitute. But he was the God who became a human being to love you more faithfully and compassionately than anyone ever has or ever will. Because, as we're told, God is love. And he will save you if you believe in him. If you're a Christian, I'd like to invite you to love and to trust him more. Because surely, surely the God who steps into human history to be mistreated by his own creation, surely that same God will be able to provide for you in a pandemic. Surely the suffering and the loss that you've gone through, as real as it is, does not mean that his character, his heart, and his goodness toward you has changed. It hasn't. You're loved. And if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, please, friend, what are you waiting for? Stop attending church. Stop playing at church. Stop treating the gospel message as a path to self-improvement and put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Turn yourself in, tell him that you're a sinner and you want him as a savior and you'll experience for yourself the reality of the promise that if anyone trusts him, he will save. Let's pray together, shall we? Can I just speak for a moment to those of you who are here in person and to the many more who are watching online and ask you if you have the certainty of eternal life? If you don't, could I invite you please to trust in Jesus as savior? Could I invite you to do that right now? He's a person. He's listening. He's searching your heart. He's actually speaking to you. That's what he is. He's the word. The word of God speaking to you. Would you please, in the name of Jesus, I'm inviting you, turn from your sin and turn from yourself and tell him, Jesus, I believe and trust you to save me. I've sinned. I've ignored you. I've defied you. You can use your own words, but just confess to him who you are and what you've done and ask him to save you, and he will. And if you're a Christian, the word became flesh is the greatest expression of love that anyone could ever give you. He loves you that much. Surely the God of all eternity who stepped into history having done all that, will also be able to care for you now, even in these difficult days. Father, I pray for those who need to trust you right now as Savior, Jesus, that they would turn to you right now and pray with me and pray to you. Jesus, I believe. I trust you. Please save me. pray, God, that they would have the certainty of eternal life as they turn to you. And for the Christians who are here, Lord, and in any Christian gathering, the majority of people have come because they do believe you. They do trust you. But our faith has been shaken. We've been tested. So help us sit with John at this amazing cosmic announcement that you stepped into eternity and loved us this way. And look at our earthly concerns and realize that if you were willing to do all that, if you were willing to live, love us, Jesus, by dying for us, surely you will and can take care of all of our earthly concerns. We ask this in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. Folks, I love you. Thank you for going deep into the scripture. Thank you for your patience and listening to this amazing passage. 
If you've trusted Jesus as Savior, let us know via text, via email. If you're here and you've trusted Jesus as Savior today, take a moment, fill out the card that's in your bulletin and drop it off on your way out. We have Christmas tree ornament invitations. We have yard signs for you. Let's make this Christmas Eve one in which we let needy people, including ourselves, because we're the first among the needy, really hear about the love of Jesus this Christmas season. God bless you. Bye-bye.